Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is entitled, Authentic Walk. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Each Christmas in Lima, Peru, a conflict resolution festival takes place that's called uh, Tanakawa. It's held in the center of town. In the native language, Tanakawa, which I hope I'm saying it right, it means beat each other up. The community event was started centuries ago as a way for villagers to settle disputes, avenge loved ones, or to gain the love of a woman, or to just work out their aggression. Pretty much anything goes in the ring except for a few simple rules. A referee will call the fight once he deems it is over or one of the contestants is hurt. No rings can be worn on fingers, and the fighting is voluntary. However, if you refuse a challenge from uh, someone, you concede your, to your challenger that they are more superior than you and that they win the argument. Loud music is played, lots of beer is consumed, lots of food eaten, and hundreds show up each year to attend and see the festival. And then just to sort of uh, season it with a little spirituality, Someone parades around with a mini statue of baby Jesus. These first two contestants that you see here on the screen are neighbors, longtime neighbors, Nestor and Gabriel, their names. They had had a long year, several year long dispute about where a property line should fall between their two properties. They went to the courts, the courts didn't solve it the way they wanted. So they decided to step into the ring. After a few minutes in the ring, these neighbors hugged and then went to drink more beer together. I assume they got it worked out. Unless you think this is a men-only event, ladies, you should know, there are women that also participate in it. Some do it to settle disputes amongst their children, or maybe an argument over a husband, and some do it just for sport. Sadly, there are churches that act like this. Punches are not always thrown, but words are said and things are done that hurt just as much as a broken nose. The Lord's church, though, has been called to a higher standard because the Lord's church represents something greater than itself. Near the end of, its min of his ministry, Jesus said to his disciples, uh, all people, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. However, Jesus knew that this would not always be easy because of our inherited sin nature. And knowing this, he's provided some specific ways for us to love one another. And they are loving and just. 
We're resuming our series in 1 John called Authentic Walk. I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to 1 John chapter 4. If you forgot your Bible, just raise your hands and one of our ushers will bring you a copy that you can borrow from us. 1 John chapter 4. I also want to encourage you to take out the sermon notes that are in your worship folder that you received when you came in, and there's an outline that you can use to follow along with me and some blanks for you to fill in so that in the future you can look back and hopefully remember what this message was about. Let's review our theme verse for this series. Uh, I want to encourage you, if you haven't highlighted it already in your Bible, to have it highlighted and maybe write it down and memorize it with me. It's 1 John chapter 2, verses 4 and 6 put together to complete a thought. And uh, let's say it out loud together. It's, whoever says I know him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Throughout this series, John has been saying uh, this simple truth in several different ways. And he keeps on kind of restating it or even implying it. And that is that real Christians really walk with Christ. This crusty old apostle has been saying with a tell-it-like-it-is boldness, if you claim to know Jesus, then follow him. Love like him. Sacrifice for him. And if necessary, suffer for him. John has also been telling us the inverse of these, this truth, which is don't claim to know Jesus if, if, if you're not going to follow him. You don't want to love like him. You don't want to sacrifice for him, and you don't want to suffer for him. Now, in part one of this message uh, from 1 John 3, the apostle basically told us this. If you know God through his son Jesus Christ then you should love like him. And if you love like him, it proves you know him. That's, that's in essence what John was trying to say in chapter 3. Now, he doesn't mean loving the way the world does, and I explained that in that message. If you missed it, you can find, you can find it on our website or in our podcast. He, he means loving the way the Lord loves And so just as he did in chapter 3, John is going to remind us today that the special kind of love the Father has lavished upon us should affect our relationships that we have with others in the church. Thus, our big idea for today is this, and I want to encourage you to write it down, real Christ followers fight for healthy relationships. Real Christ followers fight for healthy relationships. Loving one another the way God loves us is unpopular, it's uncommon, it's uncomfortable, and it's unselfish. But loving the way God loves is pleasing to him, fulfilling for us, and it's life-changing for others. And for the sake of the gospel, it's worth it. John answers in the passage we're looking at today uh, at least these two questions for us. And that is, how did God demonstrate his love for us? And then why should we, as brothers and sisters in the church, love one another? John talks about that in chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Follow along with me as I read. John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. 
And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent us his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So uh, notice in verse 10, John points out not that we have loved God. As other authors of scriptures have pointed out, such as Paul in Romans, he did the same. John wanted to make it clear we were not the initiator in the relationship that we have with the Lord. He was. He was the initiator. The Lord pursued us when we were at our worst, we were at our ugliest, when, when we were loving sin and wanted nothing to do with him. Now, I think there's a reason why John reminds us of Christ's work on the cross in the context of talking about relationships. And that is that we cannot have healthy relationships until we have a healthy grasp of the gospel. And interestingly, what I've observed in 20 years of full-time ministry is that a lot of people that don't have healthy, Christians that don't have healthy relationships tend not to have a healthy understanding of the gospel either. I've noticed a correlation. And by the way, I mean what God considers healthy relationships, not what we have come up with our own definition of what we think a healthy relationship should look like. Now, I think John says this. He's trying to get this across. You cannot have healthy relationships until you have a healthy grasp of the gospel because the gospel reminds us that apart from Christ, our relationships are ruined by our depravity. But with Christ, we are supernaturally capable of having the kind of healthy relationships that God designed us to have. And so, John says in verse 11, look at your Bibles, he says, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. He's given us a straight-up implication here. Just again, right in your face. Because of the gospel, Christ followers should be the most humble, most thankful, most generous, loving, emotionally intelligent, and relationally healthy people on the planet. The relationships inside the body of Christ should be so healthy and God-glorifying that they attract others to come and want to be a part of it. As opposed to like what we saw on the screen in my introduction, the uh, annual Christmas festival in Lima, Peru, where you look at what they're doing and you go, ooh, that's just not, that, that kind of community is not really attracting me for some reason. I'm not feeling like I want to be a part of that. John is saying that just as God demonstrated his own love for us by offering up his son, we should demonstrate our love for the son by loving one another. Now, because John's exhortation to do this is already, it's kind of a re-emphasis of what he said in, in 1 John 3. Uh, 
In fact, being transparent here with you for a second, um, I, when I first studied First John uh, a few years ago, I found myself frustrated as I was trying to outline it because I'm going, he seems to have circular thinking. He kind of, he says something, he leaves the topic, then kind of comes back and says it again. And, and, and then I, I was reading in some commentaries where one scholar said, First John is a notoriously difficult book to outline. And I went, oh, thank you. If this guy says it, then I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I thought I was weird. I thought I had a problem. But, but uh, having said that, we know that repetition is intentional in the scriptures. So there's a reason why John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, repeated himself. But having said that, I thought it would be helpful if we looked at a couple other passages that tell us how we should love one another. Because I think if I did a poll this morning and I went around and asked all of you one-on-one and we set up a camera with a microphone, do, we, do you believe that we should love one another? Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. You all would agree with that. You know, or if we took a congregational vote, all in favor of loving one another, yeah, amen, okay, good. But the how is where it gets ugly and gets difficult and it gets, well, what's that look like? Because we can agree in theory that we should love one another, but what I found myself wrestling with as I looked at this passage this week is, yeah, but I'm, I'm really pragmatic. I, I, I want to know, show me what it looks like. And so, if you're like me, there's hope for you this morning. We're going to get real. Now, the New Testament doesn't deal with love in the Lord's church as some vague concept or utopian value. It does get specific. In fact, the New Testament is specific, intentional, and very practical on how we should demonstrate love. And I wholeheartedly believe that using the following three applications I'm going to give you, if we will do these things, we will not only proclaim the gospel uh, like visually for people to see it, but we also will attract to our church people that long for deeper, healthier, more meaningful relationships. And so with that... Uh, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5? Jesus answers the question, how should we love one another in Matthew chapter 5? At least in part, he answers it there in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, Jesus says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. Okay, well, what's Jesus saying here? Well, here's number one on your outline. The first application of how we can love one another is this. By resolving conflict with each other urgently. By resolving conflict with each other urgently. Now, because it takes two people to have a conflict, there's always two sides to a conflict. There's the person that perceives the offense, and then there is the perceived offender. And in the two Matthew passages we're going to look at, we're going to look at both sides of a conflict. Because both sides have a responsibility to resolve it. Both sides have a responsibility to mend the broken relationship for the sake of the gospel. 
And so Jesus says, and here's letter A, the potential offender should humbly check. They should humbly check. So, so don't make the mistake I did one time. I'm remembering an instance uh, uh, several years ago where somebody came to me in a church where I was serving and said, hey, pastor, I think Joe Smith may be offended or upset by what you said to him recently. And me having a very naive understanding of peacemaking at the time said, well, Joe Smith needs to come talk to me then. I was wrong, because I was only thinking of Matthew 18, which we're going to get to in a minute. But I did not know Matthew 5. I should have immediately went to Joe Smith and said, hey, I'm hearing from Mike that you're upset at me. Let's talk that out. Did I do something? Please, I want to make this right. And so, so Jesus says the potential offender should humbly check. He's, he's making a radical statement here in the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying that I don't want your worship, don't bring your worship to me if you have a broken relationship with another believer you've done nothing to try to resolve. In fact, resolving conflict is so important that Jesus says, just leave your gift at the altar, go fix the relationship, or at least do your best to try, then come back and worship me. Translation, drop what you're doing and go to them right away. And so, here's, let me get even more specific, because uh, I want to be as clear as I can uh, on this. The application, the very specific application, I think, is this. If the Holy Spirit's been convicting you about how you treated someone, a sibling, a friend, a spouse, a neighbor, co-worker, you need to go and apologize to them. Don't, don't wait for them to bring it up. Don't, don't wish that it, just that feeling of conviction will go away, because it, it will. If you harden your heart to the Holy Spirit, it will go away. And you'll lose your sensitivity to the Holy Spirit like your heart will become calloused. And, and, and what I think Jesus is saying is go and check. Go make it. Go and say, hey, you know, the other day I said this thing. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. I, I, I was out of line. Will you please forgive me? And sometimes they may go, yeah, you're right. You were out of line. I'm so glad you brought it up. And there's other times they may say, oh, no, that's no big deal. That's a, it was nothing. And that's okay if they do that, because at least you demonstrated the humility to go and say, I value our relationship and I love the Lord. And I wanted to just make sure I didn't offend you. If you can't remember the last time you apologized to somebody and yet you profess to know Christ, you may not fully understand the depth of your depravity. If you're a Christ follower that has a hard time saying, I'm sorry, you may not have a complete understanding of the gospel and not see yourself the way God sees you. Because as you've heard me say before, the Bible basically says we either just got done sinning, we are sinning right now, or we're about to sin. So, we can love one another by resolving conflict with each other urgently, and the first step, Jesus says in Matthew 5, is for the potential offender to go humbly check. 
the person that thinks they might be guilty or there's a chance, a smidgen, a percentage chance that maybe you said something or maybe, maybe it was a conflict and they were 98% at fault, that's what we all think usually, and you have 2% that you contributed, you're still on the hook with the Lord for the 2%. And you should go and own that. Of course, they're thinking you're 98% at fault, by the way. And that they're only 2% at fault. Just saying. Now, turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, Jesus addresses the other side of the conflict. He instructs the, the, the person that's been offended, or perceives they've been offended, and what they should do in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So here's letter B. The person offended should lovingly confront. The person offended should lovingly confront. Jesus says in verse 15, if your brother, which by the way, the Greek word that's used in the original text, it's gender neutral, so it means brother or sister. It's, it'd be like saying mankind. It's not meaning man as in masculine. It just all humans. And so if your brother or sister sins against you, this is, this is the way all fellow believers are to resolve conflict. The term brother or sister also would mean within the family of God. Now realizing that conflict is inevitable between sinners saved by grace, Jesus then lays out a process for reconciling with a brother and sister. And so let me give you the steps to fill in here on your outline. The first step is, is this. Ask yourself the question, is it really worth confronting? You see, because Jesus says sins, if they sin against you, the perceived offense has to violate the word of God. You need to be able to find chapter and verse to support your claim. This is because Jesus doesn't want us confronting each other over petty things. Being rude or inconsiderate is sinful, but having a different perspective than someone is not. Taking someone's stuff without their permission would be sinful, but having different strengths than them is not. Now you can discern whether it is worth confronting by asking yourself these three sub-questions. They're bullets on your outline. Uh, these are uh, some questions that I learned in my biblical counseling training, and I also learned these from uh, Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker, which is an excellent, excellent read for a more in-depth treatment on this. It's recommended to you in your worship folder. But you, ask, you can ask yourself the question, will this hinder our relationship? So, so in other words, if you're having a hard time discerning is this sinful or not, I'm just quite not sure, 
you can ask yourself, well, will this hinder our relationship moving forward? Is the relationship you have with the person going to stop progressing or backslide because of the perceived offense? Has it changed the relationship or damaged it? The next question you can ask, is there a pattern? Is this the first time they've done this, or is it a recurring thing that you're noticing? If it's a pattern, it could be that the Lord wants to use you to point it out to them. Next, if left alone, will this hurt the witness of the individual or the church? Will it hurt their witness? If the perceived offense is big enough to hurt the witness of the church, then your fear of confronting and the offender's feelings have to take a back seat because the Lord's reputation is more important. So, will it hinder the relationship? Is there a pattern? If left alone, will this hurt the witness of the individual of the church? These, these questions are a great tool. They've helped me and they've helped many others discern whether, whether you're being hypersensitive or overly critical. And by the way, if you struggle with having a critical spirit, just, just a little, this is a bonus, you're going to feel like you need to confront everything. <laughs> just, just know that about yourself. And oh, I have something for the other people that don't struggle with having a critical spirit. If you fear people more than God, you're going to fear confronting anything at all. So just know that about yourself if you're one of those temperaments. So if the answer is no to these three bullet questions, then it's probably a minor thing and you should let love cover it. But if the answer to these three sub-question, bullet questions is yes, then you proceed to step two. Jesus says, go speak to the person privately. Why? Because tolerating someone's sin is just as unloving as committing sin against them. Did you know that? Tolerating sin in someone's life is just as unloving as committing sin against them. Why should you go privately? So that you don't embarrass them or embarrass yourself. Because you could be wrong when you're going to confront. When following this process, you have to leave room for the possibility that you might be wrong. You might not have heard them correctly. You might have misunderstood them. Maybe you heard something out of context. Maybe you, maybe you walked into the room, heard a smidgen of what was being said, and didn't get the context of the conversation, and you took offense to the little smidgen. Or you didn't see nonverbals, or something like that. And so... You go speak to them privately. You choose an appropriate time and place. Affirm your love for them and your relationship. Share your perceptions honestly, directly, and gently. I had somebody claim that he, uh, uh, years ago, tried to follow this process with me, and he was so indirect, beat around the bush, passive, that I didn't even see that he was doing it. I totally missed it. And I, and I, 
Now, granted, since then I've learned to be a little more observant, but, but I tried to communicate to him, you needed to be more frank with me, because I'm dense, okay? So, so I don't, you can't just beat around the bush like, like it, when, for example, in Sam, 2 Samuel, when the prophet Nathan went to confront uh, David about his affair with Bathsheba, the prophet Nathan may have started with a proverb about somebody stealing a lamb, but eventually he said to David, thou art the man. He eventually brought it home and said, I'm talking about you, David, and then David got it. So, ask questions, listen patiently. If they repent, grant forgiveness and celebrate that you've acted out the gospel in your relationship. So here's step three. If they refuse to repent, get help from the church. Jesus says, go to the church. Where, well, he says, take one or two others with you. The best option is a witness that maybe saw the offense or sin take place. Most likely, Jesus was referring to one or two people who could witness the follow-up as you attempt to reconcile, like a neutral party that cares for both of you. Someone that's godly and discerning would be best. Don't take your mom with you. She'll be biased. <laughs> Don't take your spouse with you. They'll be biased. A small group leader, a ministry team leader, a common friend that knows both of you that would be objective. These are good examples of people to call on. These are good examples of why you should be in a small group, by the way. So then you have people that can help reconcile you with someone. Next, step four, if they still refuse to repent, get help from church leadership. See, there's a gradual escalation that Jesus is describing here. Now, sadly, many of us have either seen or heard of verse 17 being handled very poorly by seeing unrepentant people shamed in a small group publicly or or maybe it's announced in a public worship service. That is not the place to do this, by the way. It's not the proper application of the verse. Wisdom and cross-referencing other scriptures would reveal the better way to handle conflict if it gets to this stage is to go and tell somebody on staff, a pastor, an elder, you're, you're escalating it to the next level to get more help. The Lord has not only charged pastors and elders with protecting the unity of the church, but he's also given them the spiritual authority to do so. And then finally, step five, if they still refuse to repent, after these steps have been followed, you treat them as an unbeliever. Jesus said as a Gentile or a tax collector, but he meant treat them as an unbeliever. It doesn't mean you, you go tell everybody else, yeah, he's going to hell because he wouldn't repent when I confronted him three times, and yeah, he's probably not saved. It doesn't mean you do that. I think Jesus was saying you treat them like an unbeliever by creating distance between you and them. You, you put some distance between yourself and the unrepentant friend so that they feel the pressure to repent. You're, you're communicating that, hey, our relationship can't continue or progress until we deal with this problem that we've got. We've got to resolve this. Sometimes elders have to apply this verse to unrepentant church members by removing them from the church in order to protect the church. 
And again, the goal is to put pressure on the offender by showing them you can't treat people that way and still have all the benefits of community and the relationship. So, specific application. If there is someone that hurt you recently, or maybe a while ago, you need to go tell them instead of telling everybody else but them. That's what we like to do, isn't it? Our sin nature likes to tell everybody else what somebody did to us so we can build a posse and get sympathy from others. All the while, the person that hurt us has no clue that they did it because we never said anything. But just as God took the initiative in showing us our sin so we could be reconciled to him, we too should take the initiative by showing others their sin so they can be reconciled to us. That's what I think Jesus is saying here. But it also means we need to care more about their relationship with the Lord than we care about our relationship with them. If if we're going to be a church that transforms our community with the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ, then we first need to show the world how to love one another by applying the gospel to our relationships. And we do that by repenting to each other, being quick to apologize, transacting forgiveness, and being reconciled to each other just like we are reconciled to Christ. He showed us our sin. We repented, turned from it, said, we're sorry, Lord, please forgive us. He welcomes us back. Jesus' process works if both people, not just one, both have the humility to admit they were wrong or to own their contribution to the conflict. So real Christ followers fight for healthy relationships. So, so I, I've showed you uh, Matthew 5, Matthew 18, both sides of conflict, how we can love one another. Let's look at Galatians chapter 6 now. Paul also gives some counsel on this topic of how we can love one another. Galatians chapter 6. In Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So how does Paul say that we can love one another? Well, here's number two in your outline. By restoring those who are struggling gently. By restoring those who are struggling gently. Brothers, again, in the original language, is gender neutral. So it can mean brothers or sisters. And although Paul uses Greek words in verse 1 to describe unintentional sin, the same principle applies to those that are willfully sinning. The body of Christ is supposed to help. So how? Well, Paul says you should restore them. The Greek word that he uses for restore is an interesting word. It's a fascinating word. And it's used in other parts of the New Testament to either mean the mending of nets or setting a fractured bone, as in surgery. 
Those of you that have ever had a broken bone set know that it can be a very painful process, but worth it and necessary. But, but the, the meaning of the word, what it's trying to get at that Paul uses for restore, it's basically to put something back together so it functions the way it's supposed to. So it does what it was designed to do because, because it's broken, it can't do what God designed it to do. In a similar sense, helping a fallen brother or sister can involve confrontation followed by a restoration process, all of which can be painful, but it's short, short term. Because the goal is to set the bone and get it back to where it's supposed to be. Still, there are other times when just a little mending needs to be done. You know, back in the Midwest, uh, when I was growing up in the Midwest, one of the beautiful sights that uh, we would get to see each season, and it was a sign of the changing of the seasons, was seeing a flock of Canadian geese migrating. Researchers have discovered two interesting facts about migrating Canadian geese. First of all, they fly in formation, in a V formation, to reduce drag. And in fact, scientists have found that there is 71% less drag when they fly in formation together, as opposed to one goose flying by itself. And then they also found in their studies of the Canadian goose that they take turns whoever's going to be at point. So they rotate. So that once like one goose gets tired at the front, at the tip of the V, he kind of falls back in line. And another goose that's been benefiting, who's been, who's been drafting, to use a NASCAR, NASCAR turn, <laughs> a term, uh, moves to the front. But something else that scientists have found that's fascinating about the Canadian goose is that if one of them falls out of formation, like they get shot or they get sick and they fall to the ground, two other geese lead the formation to go stay with the ailing goose until they can fly again. In other words, they don't, they don't go like, oh, too bad. See ya. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot that Christians could learn from the Canadian goose about soul care. One way we can apply what Paul is saying here in Galatians 6, 1 and 2 is by reaching out to people that have not been back to worship service or back to small group in a while by calling them and saying, hey, we miss you. Are you okay? Doing so communicates, we love you, we care for you, and, and your walk with the Lord matters. And, and we'd rather risk nagging you in order to show that we care for your soul. It also means being able to willingly walk with those that are struggling until they get right with the Lord and they are able to walk on their own again. Thus, tying it back to what John was saying in, in 1 John 4, just as God took the initiative by pursuing us, we too should take the initiative by pursuing others that have wandered from the Lord so they can be restored. Real Christ followers fight for healthy relationships. Finally, 
If you would turn to Romans 14, here's the last point. Paul gives two bits of counsel, just like Jesus did, on how to love one another. In Romans 14, verses 1 and 2, Paul is he's dispensing some much-needed counsel to the divided church in Rome. They were divided in large part because Jewish believers and Gentile new believers were, were bickering over opinions and preferences. And so, in Romans 14, verse 1, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Paul was trying to help the two groups that were coming into the church at the time, Gentiles coming out of pagan religions, Jews coming out of the Jewish religion and the law, following the Old Testament law strictly, they were fellowshipping together. There was friction going on in the early church. And they were bickering over their preferences, mainly over what diet was okay for a believer to have and what day of worship was okay. And so Paul says... Uh, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. The Amplified Bible translates verse 1 as without criticizing their opinions. He's, he's saying stop fighting over issues that, a preference or opinion that are not word-based. They're, they're not worth dying for. They're not truth. So, 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 so that means, for example, don't, don't, don't quit going to your small group because you're a cat lover and you discovered somebody else in the group is a dog lover. And, and somehow you've made up in your mind that, well, in Revelation 5, it says that Jesus is a lion of the tribe of Judah, therefore lions are cats, and so Jesus must prefer cats, and therefore I should never be part of a small group that doesn't have all cat lovers. Or, or don't sign up to serve on the setup team and complain to your fellow teammates, you know, if I were leading this team, I would uh, have us setting up the cafeteria first before the gym because C comes before G in the alphabet and God is a God of order. I'm using, I'm trying my best to use a humorous hyperbole here to make a point about how crazy some people get about their opinions. Sometimes people try to find a scripture verse that somehow will justify and back up their opinion. I have found that highly opinionated people are proud of speaking their mind. However, the book of Proverbs says that speaking our minds all the time is prideful. Proverbs 18.2 I'll put it on the screen behind me because we don't have time to look it up. But in Proverbs 18.2, Solomon writes, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in airing his own opinion. He just wants to be heard. Doesn't want to understand anybody. Doesn't want to listen. It's just the fool goes, I think, and I feel, and you know what? And that guy, and that girl, and this person, and that's just totally off. The fool has something to say about everything. It's prideful because we're, we're elevating our preferences to the same level as the scriptures. It's prideful because when we, when we have an opinion about everything and we share it with everybody, we're making ourselves the supreme model on how to live, think, and feel. Now, it's okay to have a few opinions, but even those should be held loosely 
And I think those should be seasoned with the humility that says, you know, since you asked, I mean, I wasn't going to say anything until you asked me what I thought about this. I could be wrong, and I often am, but, you know, here's what I think. But, you know, you're, you're leaving room for being wrong. <laughs> or, or you could say, you know, this is just my opinion, so I'm not going to die on this hill. <laughs> But I have found, as I have grown in my own walk with the Lord, and I have studied the scriptures, I have found that I'm having fewer opinions the older I get, and I find also I'm sharing even fewer. And I'm also observing those that have immersed themselves in the word of God tend to share and speak the word more than they speak their opinions on things. And those that are not immersed in the word of God tend to share more of their opinions. But what I'm learning as I've studied the scriptures the last 25 years is that Christ followers should be the least opinionated people on the planet because they have something true worth fighting for. That's the gospel. They have something true worth dying for. So, we can respect personal preferences humbly. Sorry, that was point number three. I may have forgotten to mention that. We can love one another by respecting personal preferences humbly. We can still fellowship with people that think differently or have a different perspective than us, and that's okay. Because what Paul says in various places is that the gospel and the word of God should unite the church. We can agree on what the word says. We may not agree on what color the carpet should be in our future worship center. We may not agree on what should happen, what the temperature should be in this room when we have worship service. Some would love 72, some would love 78, some would love 65. It's all, it's all subjective. So, we can love one another by resolving conflict urgently. We can love one another by restoring those who are struggling gently. And we can love one another by respecting personal preferences humbly. Loving one another the way God loves us, it's uncomfortable. It's unpopular, it's uncommon, and it's unselfish. But loving the way God loves us is pleasing to him, fulfilling for us, and it's life-changing for others. Real Christ followers fight for healthy relationships. We have the opportunity as a church to set ourselves apart from the world and apart from other churches and to be used powerfully by God if we're willing to do the hard work of applying the gospel to our relationships. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, I realize that in a group this size, or for those that are listening online, resolving conflict may be as foreign to them as a foreign language would be. They've maybe never seen it done, and the very fact that they read these verses may just scare them to death. Lord, please, would you give them the courage 
and the faith to step out in faith to do what your word says and to trust you with the results. Father, thank you that you are able to go before us and soften a heart to make it receptive to confrontation, but also, Lord, if that heart is not receptive, you will only hold us accountable for being obedient to you. Thank you, Lord, that we are not accountable for the other person's response. Lord, for those that have been offended or hurt, would you also bring healing for them? And for those, and we've all done this, we've also hurt others. We sin against people and we are sinned against. It's the case with everybody. Lord, would you give us also the humility to admit when we're wrong, to be humble, to be teachable. Father, if there are those that have been wandering from their small group or haven't been back to worship service in a while, would you impress upon our hearts? Uh, in this room, would you impress on hearts uh, by your spirit? Who do you want to call that person or that couple, that family? So, so that, Lord, we can apply your word and we can all share in the responsibility of shepherding and loving one another. Thank you, Lord, that as John said, you pursued us, you initiated with us. Thank you, Lord, for loving us when we were at our worst, when we were at our ugliest, and giving us an example of how to do it. Help us, Lord, to do it as a church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.